This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Cleveland! Welcome to another Too Much Effing Perspective rock and roll recreation where we replay one of our effing favorite episodes from the past. I'm your host, Alan Keller. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman. And today, we're featuring our wide-ranging talk with Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley from the band Drive-By Truckers. You know, Patterson has gotten so much flack for the name of the band, he actually wrote an entire op-ed about it for NPR, where he said it was a quote-unquote drunken joke that he thought of when he was broke and working two jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. Now, to be fair... I think there are very few band names that hold up to scrutiny. So rather than bring up the Hootie and the Blowfish, Hoobastanks, and the Beatles of the world. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait. Did you say the Beatles? Yeah, I don't think they get enough criticism for that name. That is a really bad (laughs) pun. I mean, it's awful. I think it was probably they love Buddy Holly and the Crickets, so they wanted to pick another insect, and they picked one that they could change cleverly, they thought, into Beatles, as in the beat. (laughs) And it's even worse considering how many good band names were still available at the time, like Cheap Trick, Sex Pistols, Meat Puppets, The Talking Heads, Falling Melendas, The Vainglorious. Oh, that last one's a really good one. Actually. Yeah, I think so too. It's actually the <laughs> best thing ever... about that band. <laughs> <laughs> right. In any case, Alan, have you ever been embarrassed about a band name that you'd come up with? I thought my first band had a pretty bad name, Bumstead, which I'm not even sure. It must have been a takeoff of Blondie, but we had nothing to do with Blondie. We didn't even cover Blondie, and I didn't look like Blondie. Yeah, you look more like Chris Stein, actually. Is that an anti-Semitic comment? (laughs) Not if Jews all look alike, especially me and Chris Stein. (laughs) But I'll tell you something about band names. Looking at my band names, they got progressively better. My second band was called The Goners. My third band was Women's Liberace, which my friend Camo actually came up with and was written up in the... Rolling Stone is one of the best new band names the year, probably 1990. Yeah, clever. That was a good one. And then there was uh, The Falling Melinda's. Mm-hmm. Well, what about you? What are your favorite band names? And I'm warning you now, you better not say Big Head Todd and the Monsters, Limp Biscuit, or Toad the Wet Sprocket, because I will quit the podcast right now. Let's see. What do I like? I like Kings of Leon. Those guys named that after their grandfather, which I think is pretty cool. Bronski Beat, I love. That just always sounds really cool. And then real straight and simple, like The Killers. And then there is, of course... Spinal Tap. I think that's a pretty effing good name. I think even Patterson Hood would agree it beats Drive-By Truckers. Yeah, well, let's see. Let's travel back in time to September 9th, 2021, when we first published our conversation with Patterson and Mike on what turned out to be our most popular episode so far. Yay. So stick around, and we'll be back after a short break. Alan, in the movie that inspired our podcast, This is Spinal Tap, the band Spinal Tap enthusiastically sets off on a tour to promote their new album, only to be met with a buzzsaw of canceled shows, 
unattended promo events, and general indifference. If only they had gotten their music out there on all the streaming platforms beforehand. Remember, there weren't streaming platforms in 1984 when the movie was made, old chum. Well, at least they should have had an app which would let them upload new releases right from their phone. Phones had cords back then and couldn't be taken out of the house. Well, they could have gotten instant access to their royalties so they could afford seven suites for their crew instead of the one suite on the seventh floor, as is in the movie This Is Final Tap. Alan, there wasn't even an internet 40 years ago. And to be honest, I'm not sure there's a way to do all that stuff even today. Oh, contraire. <laughs> then you don't know about DistroKid. Huh, well tell me, what's that? DistroKid? Yeah. It's a digital music distribution service that makes it easy for musicians to get their tunes into online stores and streaming services like iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and all the other ones. And you can manage your DistroKid account right from the DistroKid app. I'm sure that's what Spinal Tap did when their single took off in Japan. What don't you understand about the past, present, and future? Not to mention movies versus reality. Who do you think I am, Einstein? <laughs> anyway, DistroKid is the future of getting your music out there today. Sign up now and get the VIP treatment with a special TMEP show 30% discount. Just type in distrokid.com slash VIP slash TMEP and save big. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash TMEP and get 30% off your full year subscription. Tell them Alan sent you. Yeah, you don't have to do that part. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com. We always start these interviews by asking our guests, what is their favorite scene from the movie This Is Spinal Tap and why? I'm kind of fond of the one in the limo where the driver's just yada, 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 yada. And I think the Nigel character hits the button <laughs> and the little divider starts coming up and the guy's still talking. I've never had that device at my disposal, but I've done the equivalent of that. <laughs> The movie was long before uh, we knew what a chatty Uber right. driver was, but now everybody's been in that scene where you wish you could just mute this guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, please, I just want to go to the uh, hotel. Stop talking. It's like the, the the whole Spinal Tap thing, the whole humor is based on the fact that those guys were taking it really seriously and being inept. And we sort of like from day one, embrace the fact that the very nature of this job is absurd. Yeah. And and all the best parts of it come from the absurdity. I mean, our name is fucking Spinal Tap, for Christ's sake. Okay, tell us about one of your band's more absurd Spinal Tap moments. <laughs> I think of Jason Isbell trying to take a shit that night in, in, in Detroit. And uh, bless his heart, I know he wouldn't care me telling this story because I'm pretty sure I've read him tell it before. But but back when Jason was in our band and he was basically shitting his brains out in the stall. And yeah, it, I mean, we, we've all we, we've all had to try to get through the show <laughs> with our dinner not agreeing. Yeah, and so he's, he's in there just taking a monument. 
And the guy somehow, I guess, had either seen him walk in or recognized his boots. God forbid. I don't know. For some reason, the guy outside the stall knew it was him and started like engaging him in conversation. And Jason's like, I'm sorry, man. I'm I'm really just trying to take a shit. And it completely wigged him out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a fine line between shooting the shit and actually shitting. Patterson, you let me know that today is the literal 25th anniversary of Drive-By Truckers. Yeah, which is almost anticlimactic because Cooley and I, we're hitting like 36 years of playing together in a couple of months. But uh, I, I thought we had passed 25 a couple of years ago. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I think last year should count as like 10 years anyway, in every way. Haven't you guys been in four bands together? Yeah. What were those bands called? Well, the first one was Adam's House Cat, and that was the big one. We did that for six years, and that was like where we both kind of sort of learned how to be in a band. Adam's and- House Cat was way more Spinal Tap than Drive By Truckers. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> we, we still thought this was something you should take somewhat seriously. Yeah. And as soon as you realize it's not, it gets a lot more fun. Yeah, this is all true. Our second was just a duo. Basically, the band broke up and we didn't get the memo, so we just kept playing together. <laughs> and we were a duo. And we called it Virgil Kane. All these bands were wildly unsuccessful. Then there was a third band that we ended up kind of... <laughs> <laughs> May I ask if this is Horse Pussy? <laughs> this was Horse Pussy. And, uh, everybody everybody was Horse, horse Pussy. pussy. Did, I, I got to ask this. Did Horse Pussy and Ass Pony ever do a double bill? <laughs> no. <laughs> We didn't have a hair on our ass for not playing a show as Horse Pussy. It was just a name that we thought was funny, and it was. And we should have just called a band that and played at least one show. I'd love to just still have a flyer in a frame. So that's not a real band? That was was a real band. We were a band at the time, and and we we called ourselves Horse Pussy for a couple of days and never actually booked a gig under that name. Yep. And then then there was like a a break during which time I – Lived at my mom's house at 29 and wanted to jump off a bridge. Moved to Athens, Georgia, and my life kind of turned around. I started trying to put together this band that I had in my head. And and the big part of that was I wanted to play with Cooley again. And so I was basically trying to put together a band that I thought he would maybe want to play in some. And that became Drive-By Truckers. And that was literally 25 years ago today. I saved up some money and I bought a day of studio time and I invited some musicians I had met in Athens, half of whom had never met Cooley before that day. And Cooley drove in from where he was living. He was living in Birmingham, I think, at the time. And we got together and we recorded five songs, two of which became a a single that was the first thing we ever put out and now is a collector's item on eBay. And uh, and I don't think I have one. <laughs> if you don't have one, I'll give you one. Oh, cool, I've got, yeah. I've got three. And uh, You recorded five songs that day? Yeah, five songs that day. Yeah, you guys, you guys like the Ramones of the South. Yep. <laughs> and then uh, one of those songs ended up on our second album, and that was sort of the magic take when I knew that we had something. It's like, ah, oh, this is kind of cool. I, I like this. This is going to be fun. You know, no one got paid. It was all like beer and pizza. And uh, at the end of the day, I was like, hey, everybody would like to play a show or two. I'll book a couple things. And that was it. That was how it started. 
how do you guys relate to each other? Is your band a democracy? Is it a dictatorship or is it a anarcho-syndicalist cult? <laughs> you know, what, what is it? <laughs> it depends on what needs to get done. It, it works real well at this point. It, it hasn't always, but it works real well at this point. If someone has a big opinion about something, everyone's pretty much like, oh, that must be important because someone has a big opinion about that. You know, I generally try not to piss him off. And, uh, <laughs> I try not to get pissed off. Yeah. You know, there, there's a bit of a hierarchy because he and I have been together for so long. And then Brad, our drummer, he's still relatively new at like, 22 years, 23 years. And, uh, (laughs) and I mean, the really new guy in the band we're hitting the decade with. So it's been super stable for the last 10 years after years of, there was like 10 years of total chaos and drama and all kinds of bullshit. And then we kind of came out the other end of it and it's been like kind of, you know, like spinal tap. Yeah. It's been very fun. It's been very, very fun. I think the secret to us getting along is we just basically call each other by the most horrific names we can think of whenever we see each other. And yeah. so there's no like, there's no pin up bullshit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Has one of you ever said about the other, we shan't work together again? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you know. I remember last summer when you wrote that article for NPR, basically apologizing for calling yourself drive-by truckers. Why did you feel like you needed to do that? Yeah, you know, it's a stupid name, and it's okay. I was in a time in my life that embracing the absurdity of all of it was kind of right up my alley. It was the 90s, and as far as the new music scene in the 90s, a lot of it was taking itself very seriously in a way that I found not particularly appealing. After Cobain died, all of a sudden it started to sound like everybody was trying to sound like Nirvana without being half as good. And they all had these like super serious sledgehammer kind of names. And so the idea of something kind of stupid was fine with me. All I was listening to at that period of my life was old timey country records and old soul records. And then I was really into hip hop. You know, the Atlanta thing was just starting up and Outkast and bands like that were just putting out their first records. And I loved all that. And so it was just kind of a play on what I was into. I was like, oh, gangster rap, which was a something it was called at that moment in time, you know, and I was listening to old truck stop tapes of Red So Vine. It's like, oh, drive by truckers, you know. I bet we could sell out the Star Bar with that name. And we did. <laughs> and we did. The first first time we ever sold out a club in our lives, it was like a tiny room, 250 probably, but we'd fit 350 in there. I'd spent a couple of years working in clubs. I sort of knew what worked. I knew what not to do as far as the stupid shit that annoys club owners and the people who are going to be paying you at the end of the night. You know, I, I'd kind of figured out that, okay, if people come to see you and they drink a bunch of beer, the club owner is going to love you whether you're good or not. And so people came to our shows and they drank a lot of beer and the club owners loved us. 
And in those early days, night after night, we'd get told, man, there was only like 40 people here, but God damn, they drank like 300 people. It was great. When can you come back? You know? And so we just kept coming back. And, uh, and then the next time there would be, yeah, it people. was, per, it was performative drinking yeah, for a lot for of sure. years. My band, unfortunately was a teetotaling band and we were sponsored by Lipton and the club owners <laughs> didn't, didn't really appreciate it very much. Hello, crew world, you big fat liar. Here's a wolf in cheap's attire. Obviously, Spinal Tap go, went through drummers like toilet paper, right? We went through bass players. It was bass players for us. Well, your band is kind of like a, a revolving door of people. In, in the beginning, it was. Partly because I didn't know anybody. I mean, when I started this band in Athens, I was like super low man on any totem pole of the musical hierarchy of that town. I was a sound guy at one of the smaller clubs. I'd made some friends who all played in multiple bands that were way more successful than anything I'd ever done. And so they were kind of doing me a favor. It's like, hey, I booked a day of studio time. You want to come over? I'll buy beer. And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, and they'd all heard my songs by that point because I'd probably opened for all of them's various bands solo by that time. Cooley drove over and we had fun and then we just kind of kept it going. Yeah, there there were six people in that original lineup. So if there was a show, I, I didn't make all the shows because uh, I lived four hours yeah. away. Every now and then it would be all six. Sometimes it would be four. Sometimes yeah. it might be two. Under the name Drive-By Truckers? Yeah. Like it yeah. would be, and it, that's really different. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. it's branding, man. You start with the brand and then you build everything else around it. <laughs> as terrible as the name is, I had the name first. I mean, I actually intentionally had that name. So that all lands on my sorry ass. I'm sorry, Cooley. <laughs> I really am. If I had any idea. <laughs> Listen, it could have been worse. It could have been horse pussy. <laughs> oh, no, I'd love that. Cause... I mean, no, that's no, probably not worse. I'd, I'd take that. <laughs> Patterson Hood lives in Portland, Oregon. And back in 2020, he took part in and filmed the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests that were in the news. And that footage ended up becoming a powerful music video for the band's song, The New OK. Yeah, we've always had a political aspect to what we do. At the same time, I don't know if any of us ever really wanted to be like Jane Fonda. You know, it's like I, I wrote a song. I wrote what it means because it was eating at me. You know, the whole Ferguson thing, it just was happening at that time. And the Trayvon Martin decision had just come down where they weren't going to charge the guy. And it was so awful and terrible and wrong. And it was driving me crazy. And I wrote this song. And I thought, ah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if the band will want to do this. I don't know. But I played it for her. And Cooley's response was basically to play me his new song, which was Raymond Casiano. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess this is going to happen. You know, and the next thing you know, we basically were making the American band record. This isn't a new thing for you guys, though, obviously, right? Southern Rock Opera, when did you record that? 2000? Yeah. Something like that? I mean, yeah. you were making social and political commentary in that sure. album. I, I even asked you some things about that, Patterson. I remember we, it was some things I learned about George Wallace that I heard in the songs. and. Uh, the admiration between Ronnie Van Zant and Neil Young. 
I think I said to you, are you making that stuff up or is that actually factual? So I think you've made a commitment to that for decades. Yeah, I was really scared making that record of saying something that I couldn't back up, particularly in relation to the Wallace stuff. You know, I was like reading books and taking notes and I wanted to make sure the thing I said about Wallace winning in 82 with over 90% of the black vote, I wanted to make sure that was true because that's a big thing to say. You know, it's like, what? Because it, it sounds so absurd unless you know Alabama history, <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden kind of makes sense because the guy running against him was so fucking terrible that the average black voter knew, at least they knew what they were getting with George Wallace. He had already kind of denounced his old ways and he was courting the black vote by 1982. You couldn't win without it by that time. And so, you know, we wrote a song about him going to hell. And that was the reasoning why he was in hell is because he was that guy, because he was willing to sell out in order to win. And so I, I want to make sure that I wasn't full of shit on something like the 90% thing or whatever. If someone called us on it, then our whole record, it didn't work. Well, you know, first of all, I'll tell you something. In 1988, my band Women's Liberace, talk about a stupid band name. Um, <laughs> That's <I> awesome. <laughs> <We put> a, <laughs> Damn, Cooley. Why didn't you think of that? <laughs> we were on a Rolling Stone list for the best new band name. Not best new band, but best new band name. I told you. <laughs> but anyway, Women's Liberace was a Milwaukee band, and we have a connection to George Wallace in that his assassin, Arthur Bremer, was a hometown boy. Right. So... When Wallace, I guess, retired from public life in about 1989 or 90, I wrote a little kiss-off song to him called Good Riddance that was on Women's Liberace's eight-song tape, Adam and Naive. Huh. One final Wallace thing. Speaking of Spinal Tap, this is better than anything in Spinal Tap. Is uh, I actually saw George Wallace on stage in Birmingham, Alabama with the Commodores, Minus Lionel Richie, because he had already left the band. And the Commodores sang to him once, twice, three times a governor. I swear to God. Oh, my wow. goodness. Top wow. that, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> This is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, 
revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. Bringing it up to COVID times, can you tell us about the first gig of your most recent tour, Indianapolis, Indiana, the Vogue Theater? Oh, oh yeah. We were two songs into Soundcheck and our tour manager basically told us that we were going home. Yeah, that that day and the couple of days after were, were like terrible. You know, yeah. Really strange, you know, looking back yeah. on it now cuz we were kidding ourselves a little bit. We were in denial about how what this was actually going to be. We may have to cancel 2 months of our tour. A few yeah, weeks. It could be 2 months, dude. It could be it could actually be 2 months. Right. What are we going to do? <laughs> it could be yeah. all summer. And and you know, honestly, we when I left the house, I wasn't feeling good about finishing no. the tour. And by the time we got to Indianapolis, the rest of that tour was canceled and they were dropping like flies. Everyone was on a different page too, right? Mm. I'm a writer and I was at a WeWork space and I was the first person to say, hey guys, you know, you can't have mugs and utensils just lying around. There's this virus out. Yeah. I said, guys, you're going to infect everybody. And everyone was on such a different page. I mean, that's kind it, of like, part of the problem. You know, there's people, they won't, they won't get a fucking shot. And that, that's not any one group either. Yeah. It's not even owned by any one ideology. No. We can't even just make fun of the Trumpers on that. No, not completely. I saw this woman on the news. Actually, she was a doctor. I have no idea what kind of doctor, but she said that the vaccine had magnetized her and that forks stuck to her face. I know one way a fork will stick to you. <laughs> totally. I, I thought she, if she's doctor, I called her Dr. Kaforkian. Yeah. Which could be a name for a band. The Kaforkian. <laughs> <laughs> Athens, Georgia is probably the original indie music scene, right? From It's one of them. I mean, it's a good one. Athens is late 70s with B-52s, and then there's probably Minneapolis. Sure, that's a good one. And then Seattle and Chicago. Yeah. Right? Chapel Hill was like always on the verge of blowing up, but it never quite did, even though there was a killer bands out of there. Yeah. But Athens had more bands per capita in the 1990s than any place on earth. And Athens is only like 120,000 people, tops, and uh, some really great ones. And it was a diverse scene. I mean, it was like all kinds of stuff from Elephant Six to hippie bands to... Of Montreal, one of my favorite bands. Yeah. yeah. So it was crazy. What do you attribute it to? The water, the air, the... R.E.M. Okay. Domino effect from R.E.M. Because they created this idea that, hey, you can actually do this. This is a cool place. And it was a cool town. I mean, I live in Portland, and people all the time are like, did you have culture shock when you moved from Athens, Georgia to Portland, Oregon? It's like, no, I had culture shock when I moved from Muscle Shoals, Alabama to Athens, Georgia. That was culture shock. I mean, Athens and Portland yeah, that's a much bigger are step. way more alike than you would think. They're both super 
hip, liberal, artsy towns. And uh, Athens actually has the more liberal local government. One of our city commissioners in Athens took her oath of office on the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, she's a hip hop performer and she's amazing. Uh, Mariah Parker. It's Athens is cool. Was it camaraderie between the bands? Was it competition? What was the vibe? It was mostly camaraderie. It was very little bullshit. There's always going to be a little snobbery about genres or subgenres or whatever, you know. But I mean, at any given time, the drummer in one band's probably the drummer in other bands. You know, the drummer in the Drive By Truckers in the beginning, he was in several bands, including a band with his brothers. And we started using Brad whenever Matt couldn't play a show. We'd use Brad. And then after a point, it got to where we were using Brad more than Matt. He's been our drummer ever since. It was a fun scene. And it still is. I'll be in town and I'll go out one night and just stumble in and see some band in front of 20 people and then think, God, it's a cool band. You know, it's like, ah, it still happens. Were you influenced by any of the 80s Southern rock bands? Like I was a very big Jason and the Scorchers fan. Oh, we love them. Oh, yeah. I love Jason and the Scorchers, yeah. I know we loved, we loved the Georgia Satellites too. I mean, they were an 80s right. band. They were cool, you know. Yeah, they were great. They were way better than that one song that they're famous for. I mean, it's like there are other stuff... Keep your hands to yourself. You yeah, know? right, 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 I mean, right. It was, a, it was a great single, but it was a lesser <laughs> song. Battleship Chains, man, that's that's some great rock. Yeah, they and they, they were a great live yeah. band. What about John Hyatt? Love John Hyatt. Yeah, I love John Hyatt. He has a brand new record with uh, Jerry Douglas. They have a new record together, yeah. and uh, you know his daughter Lily is incredible. Right, toured with her. She, she's badass. One of my greatest concerts I ever saw was nineteen eighty one or two. John Hyatt opened for Graham Parker. Oh, fuck. Oh, that'd yeah. be great. And that's when yeah. John Hyatt was more of a pop guy, right? Yeah, I love those records. Yeah, like Kiss the Girls and Make Them Cry, you yep. know, and Slugline. Yeah, he was great. I mean, I bring the Family album is one of my favorite records. And Slow Turning, too, are two of the best records. Yeah. I love Slow Turning. Of all time. Yeah, that both of those together are fantastic. Yeah. Patterson, you did sound for a while. You were on the, at least on the sound team, right, at the legendary 40 Watt. And I was with several bands that went through there. Radiohead played there. Bodine's played there. And um, I know for a while, Barry Buck, Peter's ex-wife, owned the place. I don't know if she still she does. She still owns oh, it. Oh, yeah. 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 She's a close friend, uh, one of my favorite people. And Valina, who works with her, she's been booking it since... Before I moved there, it's like 92 or something. Wow. There's still people who work there when I worked there. Any crazy stories from the 40 Watt? <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, w- once upon a time, <laughs> the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every waking moment qualifies as a crazy For story. For sure. One of the managers there, he would hire me to make extra money cleaning up after shows, just, you know, mopping the floor and shit. Uh, and he, his name was Craig. He ended up coming to work for us. He worked on the road with us as our merch guy for seven years and unfortunately has has passed away. Uh, He and I had to mop the floor and clean up after a Flaming Lips show on the Soft Bulletin (laughs) Tour. And uh, I mean, 
hundreds of pounds of confetti mixed with all the spilt beer on the floor. And you come in the next day and it had become like cement. And so we were literally like scraping the dried confetti and dried beer off of the concrete floor oh. for like eight hours oh my a God. day. It, 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 I want to say we played a show there like oh, maybe yeah. a few weeks after that, oh, and there was still, still confetti, confetti. From that show on that floor. <laughs> I'll guarantee you there is yeah. still confetti on that floor from that show. Well, coincidentally, my bandmate that I've been together with for over 40 years, and he played bass on Soft Bulletin on the song Superman. That's my favorite Flaming Lips song. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs in the world. So, Oh, is that crazy? Yeah. You know, tell me if this ever happened to you. So he and I were once at a bar, and we were talking to this guy, and he we told him we were musicians, and he goes, oh, you're a bassist? To my friend. He goes... I'll tell you my favorite bass. It's Superman on Soft Bulletin. It's a great part. And he goes, that's me. Well, I'm Facebook friends with this guy here in, in, in Portland. He's a studio owner and session player from years and years back. And his name's John Neff, which is the same name as a former pedal steel player in the Drive-By Truckers, incidentally. And so we've become like Facebook friends. And I just found out the other day, he's the guitar player on Me and Mrs. Jones. No way. Which is like, I mean, that's one of my favorite songs ever. Uh, Me too. Me too. Well, so I was, I was at a preschool and I, there was a dad there and he was a guitarist and we were talking about guitar. I go, you know, my favorite guitar album of the last 10 years is the first Frank Black and the Catholics album. That's a great record. And he goes, that's me. And he goes, it was Lyle Workman. I go, I honestly did not set you up for that. I had no idea. My dad played bass on a Frank Black record. Which one? <laughs> uh, what's the name of it? He actually played on two of them. Teenager of the Year. and It's like several after that, like 2003, 2002. I don't know, sometime like that. But your dad isn't just any dad. He played on a ton of soul records. Yeah, my dad's David Hood from the Muscle Shoals Sound Rhythm section. And yeah, he's played on a ton of stuff. Wilson Pickett? Pickett and Aretha and Bobby Womack, some of my favorite stuff. And Willie Nelson, he played on Phases and Stages. And Bob Seger and Paul Simon and Rod Stewart. Boss Gags, Loan Me a Dime with Dwayne Allman. That's my dad on bass on that. Amazing. But uh, when we were starting out, dad would make fun of the music I listened to at that time, including the Pixies. And he would refer to them as the Chocolate Vomits. That was like his... (laughs) That's all name for something I liked that he thought was out of tune. And he would always make fun of the chocolate vomits. And years later, he ended up playing with Frank Black. And he and Charles hit it off like gangbusters. And he told him the story about that. He's like, ah, you know, when my son used to play me the Pixies, you know, I thought it was the chocolate vomits, you know. And Charles thought that was hilarious. And they became buds. So, you know, it all goes full circle. My dad actually was Al Jarreau's electrician, so he, you know, he didn't, he didn't play on his album, but he wired his house. Cooley, you said that Drive By Truckers have some gigs booked for later this year. Yeah, what's that look like? Yeah, I, I will leave in uh, five weeks and four days. That's how it feels. <laughs> to be precise. Yeah. I haven't counted down anything like that since I got my driver's license. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. I, I'm almost afraid to believe it. You know, I'm still in that state where, is it real? You know, is, is it really going to happen? It's, it's, I had a question, you know, like the movie, The Hurt Locker. Yeah. Remember he comes back 
from Iraq and he just can't adjust. And I know a lot of musicians like that, they live for the road and they don't know how real life is, right? How did you guys feel about being laid up for that long? It sucked. Was it hard? Yeah, absolutely. It took a toll on our mental health, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Um, I think here in this part of the country where nobody gives a shit, (laughs) that was another thing that was so hard was because people who do what we do were pretty much the only ones that were still sidelined for the last 10 months. Almost everybody else was back at work under some form or another, you know, little inconvenience here or there, but Touring performers were the ones that were going to be down for the count for the duration. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Cooley, because you mentioned the mental health impacts. You know, those have been profound. Has there been any kind of support in an organized way? Have Has the Grammy Association or ASCAP or BMI or any kind of groups that work with musicians all the time come forward with anything? Sure. I I haven't sought it out, but yeah, there were a number of groups that were trying to help everybody weather it financially because people who do crew work had no income. Yeah. Right. Uh, They work by the tour. I'm sure there were uh, some folks out there within the industry helping hook people up with what they needed if they needed it. Luckily, I was able to talk myself down over and over and over and over and over. Gave yourself talk therapy. Yeah. And our big nonprofit that we've had the most involvement with for 21 years now is called Nucci Space. And it's in Athens, a musician's resource center with their emphasis on suicide prevention. Mm. We do a fundraiser every year when we go back and play three nights at the 40 watt in Athens. Next year, it's going to be four nights, actually. And uh, we raise money for them. And then our fans have kind of taken it on as something like the diehards that come to homecoming every year. Because when we play homecoming in Athens, the majority of the tickets are people flying in from all over the world, literally, to come do this thing. And they've taken upon themselves to make us look bad on our fundraising efforts for Nucci Space and in a beautiful way. So they raise way more money than we do now every year. I think they raised like almost $50,000 this year and we didn't even have a homecoming, but they knew that Nucci's needed to have that check. And so they raised money. And there's the fact that this fan base enjoys hanging out with each other as much as any other aspect. I'm not really sure we even need to be there. No, no. We can do it as a Zoom call, but we won't. Would they even notice if we didn't show up? (laughs) This is all true. This is completely true. By the way, they've been holding these without you for a long time during the whole call. They just didn't tell you. You weren't invited. (laughs) In our careers, we end up opening for people that we really admire. Who are the people that you got to meet that were particularly meaningful to you? Booker. Yeah, Booker. Booker T. Jones is just the one. That was definitely like one of the highlights of my life was making a record with him and then touring with him. Touring with him is even better than making the record because we made the record. We'd never met him. Oh, I mean, wow. We literally met him on the first day of recording and we only had four days to record together. And so there was a certain amount of shit and bricks because we got to get this done really quick with this person we've never even met before that we 
look up to like on the highest degree. And over the course of those four days, we became, I think, a, a different and better band. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. He taught us more about ourselves and, and about our band, I think. You know, it's like amazing. And Patterson, you told me that Mike Mills has been a good friend and supporter. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. All the REM guys have been, you know, lovely to us. I'm friends with Peter Buck, too, who is my neighbor. So, yeah. This has been great fun. Where can people get the latest on your music, your tour dates, all that sort of stuff? There's a drivebytrucker.com. That'll take you to most anything. Yeah. And, and I'm sure probably a thousand different Facebook places too. And uh, he and I have a duo we call the Dimmer Twins. And we're actually <laughs> doing some, we're doing. That's a good name. That's one of our better ones. <laughs> That's the good one. Yeah. I like that one. The what Dimmer is it again? Twins. The Dimmer Twins. Not to be confused with the Glimmer Twins, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Oh, the Dimmer Twins. Yeah. Well, the, well, the Dimmer Twins. <laughs> I mean, right now we're booked through June of next year, including Europe. We're coming out here to the West Coast in February. And so, yeah, come look for us. We'll, we'll have a ball. Well, that sounds great. Thank you, Cooley. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Patterson. Good luck with the year ahead. And Patterson, I'll see you in the backyard. <laughs> Good meeting you guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this special rock and roll recreation. I hope it inspires you to like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast, where you can tap into our other great episodes with members of Garbage, The Pixies, Slater Kinney, Old Crow Medicine Show, OK Go, Fountains of Wayne, speaking of other great band names, and even comedian David Cross, artist Shepard Ferry, Modern Families' Julie Bowen, and many, many others. You can find our entire catalog on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Final Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Evergreen Podcast Network.